0: This is Health Yeah, your weekly update on what's going on in the health, wellness, and medical world with Monica Robbins. Hey everyone, I'm Monica Robbins. Thank you so much for tuning in to Health Yeah, your prescription for clear, concise medical health and wellness information. This episode is part two of a three-part series on gender affirmation surgery, specifically phalloplasty, which is creating a penis using the skin of a patient's arm. In part two, I talk with Dr. Gupta, a urologist with University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center's LGBTQ gender care services clinic. He explains this complex surgery and the criteria needed for someone to become a candidate. Give me your history. How did you get into this?
1: Yeah, so uh, I've been in practice for about six years. I finished my fellowship at Duke uh, in 2014 and then uh, went on to the University of Kentucky in Lexington, where I started the reconstructive urology and cancer survivorship program there. And the idea was that we were starting to offer services to cancer survivors that were not offered before to enhance their quality of life. Uh, and those services essentially required an amalgamation of various reconstructive techniques. And Interestingly, those same techniques could be applied to taking care of transgender patients. So uh, I had uh, initially just patients started coming to me who had surgeries elsewhere and had complications related to them. Uh, specifically, patients that have phaopates, so they would have fistulas or abnormal opening in the urinary tracts, or strictures, or abnorm- abnormal narrowing in the urinary tracts. Uh, and we would have the skill set to fix it. Um, and uh, over a period of time, uh, it just made sense to s- just start doing the primary surgery ourselves because, as it is, we were taking care of, care of the complications from surgeries that were done elsewhere. So truly, an, truly an organic process, you know, slowly start and gather steam and m- momentum because uh, we we had the right skill sets and the right idea. You know, we just wanted to take care of the patients.
0: So then, UH, UH recruited you. Why?
1: so uh, the the reason you had recruited me was you know uh, uh, again a cascade of many events that uh, that came in uh, and played a role. Uh, the urology department was undergoing a rejuvenation as it were, uh, and it was being expanded under under new leadership and My current boss, Lise Ponsky, was leading the charge and he had the vision uh, to see uh, that uh, University Hospitals was not just not offering reconstructive urologic and cancer survivorship services. But also, you know, it's, it's one of those things you don't know what you don't know. Uh, the gender-affirming services were just not offered here. And no, it was not even on anyone's radar. It was almost a blind spot. And Otto Ponsky had the vision to say, this is a huge need for our, for our community. Um, and he and, I, he and I started talking uh, at an annual Urologic association meeting where people meet less and think more, to be frank. Uh, and, uh, um, uh, and we had several conversations uh, leading up to two interviews that I uh, did at university hospitals, during which I met the leadership at UH, including Dr. Simon, Dr. McGarrian, um, all of whom uh, really reinforced uh, my impression that UH was committed to, to embarking on a new era as it uh, uh, pertained to gender affirming care. So here I am.
0: How often do you see patients wanting, you know, gender affirmation um, services?
1: Um, every day that I'm in clinic. So I'm in clinic two days a week. Um, and every day um, I'll see um, at least two patients. Uh, like last Monday, I saw five patients. So, But about 20% of the patients that I saw that day were wanting gender affirmation services.
0: You know, I've done stories in the past on this. And, and what's so unique about failplasty is that, um, I mean, this is of the gender affirmation, this is far more difficult. Can you talk about, but there are options relating to this. Can you talk about this particular surgery and you know, why it was, um, I, knew, I knew many people who had gone overseas to have this type of surgery and then came back and probably went to see you. What are the options? Because you don't have to go all the way, you know, from the beginning, there are different um, levels of this type of surgery.
1: That's correct. Uh, Phalloplasty is uh, arguably the holy grail of reconstruction as it comes to urology and plastic surgery. Um, and basically what phyloplasty is, just making a new penis. Uh, and it seems a lot easier than it, than it is. Uh, we have to create a penis that looks like a penis, that works like a penis, in that you can urinate through it, and then has other sexual effects, uh, uh, sexual characteristics, so attributes of a penis. So the ability to uh, have sensation, the ability to have erection, the ability to have orgasms. So there are a lot of functionalities in addition to just the anatomy part of it, and that's why it is so complicated. Um, it, uh, you know, typically, uh, the way it is done now, and this is, this is something that has been the result of decades of research in it, the way it is done now in terms of the, the most accepted and the quote unquote, the gold standard as it were, um, is that we take a flap of tissue from a patient's forearm generally the non-dominant forearm, So we'll take it from left hand for 90% of the people, left forearm for 90% of the people. Uh, and we use that tissue uh, to make a urethra, the tube that uh, men pee out of, as well as the outer uh, penile tissue. And then over a course of about a year or so, we'll do uh, my, more minor surgeries just to connect everything up and then eventually put in a penile prosthesis or an implant to make sure they're able to have an erection and uh, make sure they're able to engage in sexual activity. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a big deal. It's fraught with complications. Uh, it requires a high level of skill, patience, and ability to troubleshoot um, any untoward events that may happen. So that's that. Um, the, uh, there are other options uh, that uh, many patients choose to have uh, short of phalloplasty. You know one of the more common ones that we hear about is metodioplasty, um, which is really a almost a neologism that this word did not exist 25 30 years ago and uh, uh, it really means towards something and this something in this case is the male appearance of the of the genitalia um, in this what we release uh, what we do is instead of using tissue transfer techniques like making a penis out of the forearm uh, we just release some of the attachments of the enlarged clitoris. So the transmasculine men will have an enlarged clitoris due to the fact that they're they on testosterone and other hormones. Uh, so we just release the attachments of the enlarged clitoris and make them uh, redo some uh, tissue flaps locally and give the appearance of a small penis. Uh, sometimes uh, it is enough for, uh, for men to uh, urinate out of standing up, uh, but yeah, sometimes that's even a struggle but the but the biggest benefit of doing metoidioplasty uh, is that it avoids the complications of phalloplasty. That's number one. But also it achieves the goals uh, of a certain subset of patients. So certain patients don't necessarily want a penis when they look down. They just don't want to look down and see female genitalia. Uh, and it, all of it ties into the reason why we do these surgeries. You know, we, we don't... Do these surgeries just because they're cool to do? They are awesome and great results. The, the reason why we do these surgeries is that this, these are the right thing for the patients. And the most important thing uh, that most patients will say is they want to look down and not see anatomy that is uh, that is inconsistent with their genital uh, with their gender identity. Excuse me. Um, and a metoidoplasty is often enough uh, to get rid of that misalignment and allow patients to have uh, uh, a consistent sense of who they are in terms of their gender.
0: Of your patients, of the percentage of patients you see, how many choose for full phalloplasty compared to pteroplasty? Um,
1: I would say it's it's an evolving number. And the reason I don't want to um, you know, pin a specific number, I mean, obviously, at the end of this answer, I will give you a specific number. But uh, let me qualify this by saying that As we have gotten better with the services that we offer, uh, all of that information diffuses around and people know about it. Um, So uh, 15 years ago, uh, very few phalloplasties were being done at all because there were so so many complication rates. And those numbers have consistently increased over time as physicians and surgeons have gotten better, especially as academic surgeons have begun to take interest in it. So we can critically perform these surgeries and evaluate these results. So right now, about 20% of my patients want a meteoroplastia and about 80% will want a phalloplasty, But that number uh, is fluid. Uh, you know, five years from now, maybe the 90% may want phalloplasty versus uh, 10%.
0: How long does it take to do an entire phalloplasty? Because it's not just one surgery, obviously.
1: So the, the first surgery, stage one, is the longest and it takes us about eight hours to do. Um, and stage two, which is four to six months later, takes about two and a half hours. And stage three, which is a year after the first surgery, takes about an hour. Um, so yeah, the eight hour operation is the big operation. Uh, it's almost uh, like a symphony because myself uh, and the plastic surgeon, Dr. Toby Long, we are working simultaneously. One of, us, one of us is working in the groin. The other one is working on the arm. Then we switch roles and we go back and forth toward the, uh, you know, up until the end of the case. Uh, there is, uh, you know, we'll sometimes catch a little break in the middle when one is slightly faster than the other and you can have a coffee break or something like that. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a long day for us. It's a long day for the patient. Um, the reason we do it in a combined fashion uh, is to uh, play off each other's strengths and minimize each other's those weaknesses. Uh, and, and I think we have had great results using that approach.
0: Can you talk about these particular patients and why um, a surgery such as this is so
1: important? You know, transgender individuals, some of the data suggests that they comprise about zero point six percent of the population forty thousand people in within the state of ohio um, and this is just adults not not uh, teenagers or children so these are people who have diagnosed uh, uh, either gender dysphoria or gender incongruence um, and uh you know these people these patients uh, these individuals are just like the rest of us you know the only the only difference is that the uh, sex that they were assigned at birth differs from their gender identity. And one can easy, easily look at this with derision, sarcasm, or contempt, but it doesn't take a huge leap uh, of faith or of compassion to empathize with, the, w- w- with what's going on. Uh, you can imagine someone looking down and seeing the things that, they, uh, that do not belong. Okay, so that's a little bit of a preface to it. That's a little bit of a prelude. But the idea is that we know that patients who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria have a misalignment of uh, what the assigned sex was and what their gender identity is. We know that the seat of gender identity is complex, but it does not automatically reside in the external genitalia. We know that. the third thing that we know is then, is when a person has a misalignment uh, with their, within the, uh, in between the gender identity as well as their genitals, they have a terrible sense of distress. They have what we call gender dysphoria. Uh, they are extremely upset about it uh, to the fact that they cease to be productive members of society, they go, go in shells, they isolate themselves from their family members and 40% of patients with gender dysphoria have thought about or attempted suicide. That's more than 10% the rate of uh, the U.S. Uh, adult population. Okay, so that's the scope of the problem. How do we address it? One way to address it is to beat into uh, someone's head that, no, you're wrong. Uh, you know, Think about, just look, look down and you see a penis, that means you're a man. But well, we know that doesn't work. You know this has been tried in different iterations over several hundred years. We know that conversion therapy doesn't work for uh, gay individuals. In, in fact, it is brutal. I mean, it's to, it's it's to be condemned. Similarly, con- conversion therapy or some kind of psychotherapy to say, um, sorry about that, some kind some kind of uh, psychotherapy to say that we have to realign your uh, your identity such that it aligns with your. Um, uh, uh, with the external genitalia, that's the wrong approach, okay? So with that in mind, um, then we can move on to how how do we take care of the problem? How do we allow these patients to be productive members of the society? How do we allow these patients to be, uh, to respect themselves and gain respect from their family members and their peers? Uh, and, and what we have found is, um, an affirming uh, way of approaching uh, this entire issue, wherein um, we understand what the patient is saying, we provide them the services, be it mental health, be it counseling, be it hormonal treatment, uh, and and if the patient meets the criteria for gender dysphoria, which has been established through decades of research, then we can start them on the appropriate hormone therapy. We can start them on the appropriate surgical therapy and guess what? When it happens, it's not just something that we are doing in a vacuum. When it happens, and we go back and talk to these patients, they're much happier. You know, they are—they are, uh, they are our secretaries, they are lawyers, they are our doctors, and they are taking care of us uh, in in many uh, many different ways. So uh, it is—it is, uh, is, in my opinion, uh, you know, morally mandated to take care of these patients. Uh, it's a call to arms. Um, and I'm glad all the, all the, with, with all the political uh, things that have gone on over the last you know, five, six, seven years, I'm glad it gets the attention that it gets because uh, you know, we, we definitely cannot, uh, it is true that it's, you know, it's 0.6% of the population is transgender. It's a very small minority of the population, uh, but it is, uh, 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 it is also true that we'll be judged by the way we treat the most vulnerable amongst our population. Uh, and that is this population
0: so for someone to qualify for this type of surgery, I would assume there's there's several things they have to go through protocol, correct. Can you kind of touch yeah. on what those things are?
1: Yeah, so we uh, abide by the uh, WPATH criteria or world professional Association of transgender health st- uh, standards of care care criteria uh, and what that means uh, what that means is uh, any person who wants to have genital reconstruction, so either vaginoplasty or phalloplasty, um, must have met these uh, uh, criteria. That include that they must be living in the appropriate gender role for at least a year. So if they're a trans female, so they identify as a female, they must be living in the female role for at least a year. They must be on hormone therapy that is congruent with the identified gender for at least a year. So they should be on the estrogen therapy, for instance. Um, and they must have two separate mental health officials attest to their diagnosis of gender dysphoria and attest to the fact that they are good candidates for surgery. Um, and obviously, they must meet medical criteria. You know, they can't have terrible heart disease, terrible lung disease, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, these criteria are pre darn strike. And uh, we really don't see anyone kind of slipping through the cracks in terms of uh, uh, getting the wrong surgery.
0: How many phaloplasties have you done in your career so far?
1: Um, so we, we are probably at around the 35 to 40 mark. Um, and uh, I've done, um, uh, I have done many more revision surgeries than people who've had surgeries elsewhere. Um, you know, but our program at uh u h is just picking up uh right now we are uh doing about two fallopasties a month um uh, for the next several months, so we have worked out for the next several months yeah
0: This is not something covered by insurance I would assume
1: It is covered by insurance really yeah at- yeah.
0: So all, the, all those people who went overseas had to pay out of pocket, and now they don't have to?
1: Correct. So, I mean, there are, there are certain exceptions, but uh, uh, and I, I don't want to bludgeon the timeline, but the idea is that at some point in time, the last uh, uh, five years or so, CMS said that this should be something that should be, transgender care should be covered, and most insurances uh, followed uh, suit on it. Again, there are criteria for when they will cover it. There are certain aspects of the surgery that they still don't cover. So for instance, someone who's getting a breast augmentation or implants in, uh, in the breast, that is not covered uh, because that is generally not covered across the board. Um, but uh, genital, gender affirmation surgery for the most part is covered. Um well, insurance do make you have to jump through a lot of hoops, which we do. and uh, um, try and and do what's right for our patients.
0: How important is it now that UH has a program such as this?
1: I think it's phenomenal. Uh, You know, I have have always thought, you know, going back, I don't consider that a platitude or a cliche, you know, we have to uh, take care of the most vulnerable among us. So for me, it was an easy uh, moral calling uh, it is also fun because the, these are fun, challenging surgeries to do, so there's a lot of professional uh, gratification and satisfaction out of it. Uh, but I think UH really um, has shown how aligned it is with the community because this is something that the community needs and wants, and instead of saying, let us do uh, you know let, let's figure out what our, uh, what our bottom line would be in terms of compensation, money and so on and so forth. They said, you know, this is the right thing to do uh, for our, for our patients, for our community, and they invested in it. And it's 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 UH is a beacon of hope uh, in in the state for this for sure.
0: How many centers in the in the country do this t- particular type of surgery?
1: So there are um, many places that do either vaginoplasty or phalloplasty uh, or different components of it. Uh, but I think fewer than 10 do all the entire comprehensive, uh, provide the entire uh, umbrella services that we provide, including top surgery, bottom surgery, vaginal capacity, phalloplasty. Uh, in terms of phalloplasty, uh, you know, there, are, uh, there are a couple of centers. There's one center in New York, um, a couple in Miami, um, two in, one in Chicago, uh, Portland, San Francisco, uh, and then Los Angeles. So, um, and I'm, I'm sure I'm missing, well, and, and, a, and a couple in Texas. So uh, yeah, probably about 10 to 12, I would think. The VA has uh, you know, transgender, uh, transgender healthcare. Unfortunately, they do not cover the surgical part of services. So, um, you know, I've had, I've, I've been fellow uh I think on two veterans, uh, both of whom had to pay out of pocket because, you know, it would not be covered. Uh, and it's a pretty hefty bill. And it's, uh, but, and, and it, you know, the fact that these patients will borrow money, uh, get a second mortgage, uh, do whatever they can to get the surgery done. It, it only shows you how important it is to their sense of identity and life.
0: Can you give me just a basic dollar figure? Cause I remember when I did this story years ago, the, um, the individual who was, Trying to save up to get one, was trying to save about fifty thousand. I assume it's a much more expensive now.
1: Yeah. So, um, having covered healthcare, you know how how opaque the healthcare, uh, you know, flow of money and finances uh, are. Ballpark would be around one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for phalloplasty. Um, but you know, th- I'm sure there are institutions that would say uh, when they're when they're cash pay. They would obviously charge a little less uh, because that's right. that's the whole scam of healthcare. <laughs> but uh, and anyway, and then I think the uh, the vaginal cost would be around thirty to fifty thousand.
0: Is there a risk of of it failing and not staying attached?
1: Yeah. So that risk is. Um, low. I mean, that essentially is what we call flap loss or flap necrosis, where the blood supply gets clotted off or something bad happens. And that risk is less than one in 30. So it's, you know, as compared to other things like a hip replacement, it's still pretty high. uh, But overall, in the scheme of things, it's less than one in 30. Um, So less than 3% or so. Now, the risk of any bad thing happening, any complication happening is pretty high. And that risk is about 30 to 35%. So one in three chance that there will be a bump in the road. Uh, and the idea is that, you know, everyone will have complications. The best phalloplasty surgeons have complications. I have complications. But the reason it is important uh, that we are here is that we, we take care of the patients in our community. If someone has a surgery with us, they don't need to travel 12 hours to get that thing taken care of if they have a bump in the road. And that, that's the reason why we are bringing care to this community rather than being a quote unquote fancy you know, glamorized destination.
0: Please listen to part three of this podcast that focuses on the plastic surgery aspect of the phalloplasty procedure. Please find me on Twitter and Instagram at Monica Robbins. Catch up on health news and future podcasts on my Facebook page, Monica Robbins WKYC. Video podcasts are uploaded to my YouTube channel Just search Monica Robbins and please subscribe, too. Keep up to date on all of your new sports and weather on WKYC.com and the WKYC YouTube channel, and please follow the WKYC social media accounts as well. Random acts of kindness are good for your soul. Practice them daily. I'm Monica Robbins. Until next time, have a healthy week. Thanks for listening to Health Yeah! with Monica Robbins from WKYC Studios.